Mark 6, the feeder. Mark chapter 6. During several summers in the 1950s, Howard Muma, a Methodist pastor, served as a guest minister at the American church in Paris. After Sunday service one day, he noticed a man in a dark suit surrounded by admirers. Albert Camus, or Camus, the author, had been coming to church first to hear Marcel Dupour playing the organ and later to hear Muma's sermons. Muma became friends with the existentialist who by then was famous for his novels, The Plague and The Stranger, and for essays such as The Myth of Sisyphus. The two men met to discuss questions of religion, belief that Camus raised. Uh, Muma, now 92 years old, kept the conversations confidential for over 40 years before deciding to share them in one conversation. Camus told Muma, the reason I've been coming to church is because I am seeking. I'm almost on a pilgrimage, seeking something to fill the void that I'm experiencing and no one else knows. Certainly the public and the readers of my novels, while they see the void, are not finding the answers in what they are reading. But deep down, you are right. I am searching for something that the world is not giving me. In a sense, we are all products of a mundane world, a world without spirit. The world in which we live and the lives which we live are decidedly empty. Since I've been coming to church, I've been thinking a great deal about the idea of a transcendent, something that is other than this world. It is something that you do not hear much about today, but I am finding it. Sometimes the most outspoken people in our world, when you get the backstory of who they really are, it might surprise you. Christopher Hitchens, who died in the last couple of years of a brain tumor, was a very outspoken atheist, spoke and debated against God, debated Christian theists and so forth. But there was two sides to Christopher Hitchens. In fact, there's a book out right now called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. And he describes himself as a kind of a two-sided man. His public persona was that he was an outspoken atheist against all things related to Christianity and even the idea of God. But there was another side of him that had many Christian friends. There were pastors who were speaking into his life. And this particular book is written by a pastor who had many conversations with Christopher Hitchens. In fact, he studied the Gospel of John with him. That, that was actually even confessed by Christopher Hitchens before an audience, with, which shocked many of his followers, that he went through the Gospel of John with a Christian pastor. Don't always be uh, fooled by the cover of the book. People who have, you know, anger in their lives and, you know, maybe they are very outspoken and maybe they are very angry. Sometimes when you peel back the onion a little bit, you find out that there's hurt and maybe something bad happened. And in Hitchens' case, he grew up in a, a British boarding school that made God seem to many of these children to be an ogre. And unless you got in line, you were punished. And so he shaped many of his views about Christianity and about you know, what he saw in that boarding school, and it shaped the rest of his life. He wasn't good at sports. He was a bit of a misfit. He was bullied on the playground. But he found that his wit and his ability to use language as a debater could shut down just about anybody. And so his whole life track was determined by those early years. We just don't know what's going on with people. We don't always see the motivation behind the anger. Oftentimes when you hear someone express anger about the God of the Bible and how could you believe in the God of the Bible, it's very interesting to think about the fact that they're angry at someone that they say they don't believe in. And somebody made the argument, and I think it's an insightful argument, that you know, there's many things in life that anger me. It could be my lawnmower. <laughs> It could be other people. It could be uh, freeway traffic. It could be a lot of things. But I've never been angry at a unicorn. Never. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't have a bad day and say, those unicorns! If only they would get it together! And I think you see the point. 
You know, the anger that's expressed at what people say they believe is a mythical, made-up being. It's quite interesting to think about. And even kind of break down a little bit of the psychology of that. People all over our world are in the same boat. We are all in need of the bread of life. And this story is the story of the feeder, the good shepherd. I'm not sure if we have that slide up there, guys, or not, the sermon slide. But anyway, if we don't have it, that's okay. And uh, let's go ahead and pray one more time. Father, as we come before you now, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. We thank you that your word is alive. In fact, it is food for the soul. We're ready to receive it, Lord, so please just help us to have open ears and open hearts. Your word's already alive, so we don't have to pray that you'd bless it because you've already done that. We just really need to pray that uh, it won't come back void in our lives, that we will receive it, take it deep into our lives, and that it would bear abundant, abiding fruit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I've, I've done many memorial services and funerals over the years, and I've shared this with you before. Many people, when I ask them, you know, what scripture do you want me to share at this service, whether it's graveside or elsewhere, many times people will default to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And I often open sermons in Psalm 23 and say these words. If you can say the Lord is my shepherd, then you can claim the rest of the promises in that psalm. But if the Lord is not your shepherd, those promises don't belong to you. This particular setting is the good shepherd in action. The idea of a shepherd is a feeder. It is one who supplies for the sheep, but it's more than that. It's one who actually protects the sheep, and the sheep get used to him. They hear his voice. They know him. In fact, if you ever get a chance to read a wonderful book, it's a, it's a, a, a shepherd looks at Psalm 23. Philip Keller is the author. And he, he writes the book from the perspective of an actual shepherd. And he gives insights that are amazing. And one of the insights that he gives is that the sheep are never completely at rest unless they're in the presence of the shepherd. That's when they feel the most calm, when he's prepared the place and, and kind of safely you know, weeded it out and kept predators away and so forth. That's when sheep feel uh, the most peaceful. This is going to be a miracle meal. Uh, I think you're all familiar with the text. It's the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, that's plus women and children, and we'll talk about that in a second. This is the only miracle, by the way, Besides the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And so here's the text. It's found in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him, Mark 6, 30, all that they had done and taught. And earlier in the chapter, we saw what they had done, and they had done some incredible things in his name. So they reported the exciting things to Jesus. He had sent them out. Uh, in pairs, and they went out, and they did wonderful works. They taught. People were being healed, and it was amazing. And they came back with stories to share with their master. I ask you, what's the latest story you've shared with your Christian friends about someone who got saved at your work, in your neighborhood? How active are you? Do you have any cool stories lately? Are most of your stories from 15 years ago 20 years ago when you were on fire and now you're doing very little? It's a searching question. It's a question I asked myself this week. As much as I preach and teach and do all these things and call people to the Lord, I still have to be challenged in my own personal life. What am I doing? Do I see myself as an ambassador that leaves the house every day to try to make a difference and tell people about the hope of Jesus Christ? Well, they were excited, and they reported to Jesus, verse 30, all that they had done and taught. And Jesus' response is amazing. He said to them, come away by yourselves, 31, to a lonely place. The New King James has it, a deserted place, and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. The New Living Translation, verse 31, says, Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place 
and rest a while. Don't you love the Lord? (laughs) The Lord actually told them after a full stretch of ministry where they were probably drained, they were, we were, were told in the text they were coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat, and they were starting to realize a little bit of what Jesus was going through. For a while, they had been watching him mobbed by these crowds and people just wanting to touch him and hear his voice and people who were saying, Lord, you know, my daughter's sick or somebody wanted to reach out and just touch the hem of his garment. They were watching this. They were almost like bystanders, but now they got to experience it. Now the power was flowing through them. And this is the point of the Christian life. The Christian life is not just about watching. It's about doing. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Christianity, uh, your, your Christian life should not be, the assessment of it should not be, you know, how well you thought things went on a Sunday morning at a particular church. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about you living for your Lord and being used as a vessel of honor for the master. But when you are ministering, you get tired. When you are giving away yourself in whatever capacity you do so, you get drained. It's only natural. Pastors have often described preaching as going up in a rocket ship. And then, you know, you kind of hit up here and then slowly, you go down. Sunday afternoons can be very difficult for pastors because you get used and it's awesome, but then you get drained and you need to learn how to recover and rest. And I'm not just saying that. Jesus said it to the apostles. Come away by yourself. Sometimes you need to get alone and just rest a while. You need to recharge. You need to refresh. The word rest is a word we find many times in our Bibles. And it's anapoo in Greek. The word rest means to cease, refresh, relax, chill out. It's actually in a Greek lexicon, chill out. <laughs> Just kidding, it's not. But, but that we get the idea, don't we, that we need some downtime. We need a chance to just get away from it all. And this is what Jesus tells them. So the apostles are mentioned here. They reported to Jesus. Uh, I think this is the only place in Mark, by the way, where they are, the 12 is described as apostles. Apostolos is the Greek word. And it's a delegate, a special ambassador. It's a messenger sent forth with orders. And so here's my point, application point, if you're taking notes. Are you on mission? Do you see yourself as an ambassador for Christ, as though God were pleading through you? Did you know that God has you where he has you for a reason? Sometimes we, we think, you know, oh, my life is just mundane. Well, God can redeem anything if you're open to letting him into those areas of your life. People you work with every day. People you have, uh, you, maybe you do some hobbies with certain folks. All of that can be redeemed if you will allow yourself to become that ambassador. And so look at verse 32. They went away in the boat to a lonely place or a quiet place by themselves. So notice the repetition in verses uh, 31 and 32, a lonely place. King James, New King James, a deserted place. Uh, It's technically, the KJV actually translates, translates this as a desert place. And again, in the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves going back to what's called the wilderness tradition. This has been highlighted in a wonderful commentary by William Lane on the Gospel of Mark. And he makes the point from Mark chapter 1 and onward with the mention of the wilderness four times in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 13, is that the wilderness is a, re- is a repetition. It's a place where Israel would know it well because much of their history unfolded where? In the wilderness. After the the mighty acts of God, after the Passover, they went out into the wilderness and they, this is called the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And what happened there? Some highlights. Well, God led them out with a mighty hand. They crossed the Red Sea. God with the blast of his nostrils, one of Pastor Michael's favorite images in the Bible. Shabam! You know, open the sea. It's wonderful. 
It's where I think baseball players get it from, but anyway. So he opens the sea, covers the Egyptian army, leads them out, provides the manna and the water from the rock. And incredibly, his presence is with them. And 1 Corinthians 10 says, write, write this down, verses 1 through 4, that the rock that followed them in the desert was Christ. He was there supplying. The good shepherd was there meeting his people's needs. But we know what happened. For most of that generation, in fact, about scholars believe, historians believe, about two million people left Egypt. You know how many entered into the promised land? Two. Two out of two million. I don't know about you mathematicians who are out there, but those statistics are not terribly impressive. Two of that generation entered the promised land and everybody else was laid low in the desert. Why? Not because they didn't see miracles. Not because they had to say to their friend in the tent, hey, if God would just show up here, maybe I'd believe. Uh Uh-uh. He was there. The glory cloud was there. That was not the issue, folks. The issue was right here. And it's the issue with you and me. We see God do things every single day. Many of them we overlook. And those people were laid low because of unbelief. And in many ways, in the wilderness tradition, Jesus is retracing the steps of fallen Israel. Where they failed, he is going to succeed. He went out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. He was fasting retracing the fallen footsteps of Israel. Why does he go to John to be baptized? He has no reason to be baptized. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance to prepare for the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't need to go through a baptism of repentance. Why in the world does he get baptized? Because he associates himself with the people. Because he's showing that he has come to do for them what they failed to do for themselves. He has come to give life. He's come to fulfill the law. He's come to be perfectly obedient to his father and then lay down his life for his friends. This is the beauty of who Jesus is. And the people, verse 33, saw them going. The them points to the apostles and Jesus. And many recognized them. Note that in verse 33. And they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. It's always a bummer when you're trying to get away. And then you say, people. People. (laughs) You ever get in that mode? Don't people know I'm trying to rest? Have you ever been in your car and you want to change lanes, but you have not put on your blinker, but you think that the person in the other car should know that you would like to move over to their lane? Pray tell. (laughs) How will they know that? But that's a, is that a guy thing for me? I find myself getting angry about that guy. Does that person know? Sometimes I have to be corrected. Well, if you put on your signal, they might have a clue. Oh, yeah. People. Just mark that. The people. <laughs> they saw them. The them is interesting because before it used to be that the people were mobbing Jesus and it was all about Jesus. And of course, that is always the focal point. But now... It's the them. The apostles have been involved because now that they've done ministry and they've been able to heal people by God's power, now all of a sudden the people are running after them too. Why? Because maybe they can touch me and I get over a sickness. Or maybe I could be healed of some oppression or demonic influence in my life. So the people ran ahead. My understanding of this, this trip across the lake is it was about four miles to cross the lake and about eight miles to hoof it on foot. How did the people beat them? I do not know. Unless the wind was contrary to the boat or there was some hesitation. But anyway, the people get there first. And the scene is that Jesus said, let's go to that desert place to rest, but you can't rest when the people are there. And when he went ashore, so Jesus arrives, the people are there, 34 He saw a great multitude, perhaps thousands of people. And he felt what? Compassion. 
for them because they were like, would you note it? Sheep without a shepherd. And he, before he does the food miracle, he began to teach them many things. The people beat them there. Maybe the apostles were saying, rats, rats. But Jesus, he looked upon them with compassion. If you allow compassion to drive your life, you will rarely go wrong. Compassion is a word in the Greek language that speaks of it coming from deep within you, even from within your bowels. It speaks of tender mercy or pity. It means to associate yourself with the people upon whom you look at with compassion and say, wow, my heart goes out to that person. That's compassion. Compassion is the reason for evangelism. Compassion is love in action. Compassion is the heart of God. How would you rate yourself on the compassion meter today? There are two allusions, uh, verses being alluded to here in the Old Testament about sheep without a shepherd, and I'm going to take you to both of them. The first one is found in the book of Numbers 27. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You want Numbers 27. Now, the first five books are called the books of Moses, the five books of Moses. And these stories about, are about the wilderness wanderings. And this is verse 12 of Numbers 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up to this mountain of Abrim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, 2713. And when you have seen it, you too shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was. Numbers 27, 14. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Okay, Lord, if I'm going to die, they need another leader. They need a shepherd who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be, would you note it, like sheep which have no shepherd. Now, we've heard this many, many times in the stories of the Scripture, but this comes from the wilderness tradition, and it was Moses' concern for the people. God had told him, you're going to die. Get your house in order. You're going to be gathered to your people. And Moses got a chance to look at the promised land, but he did not enter into the promised land. And Moses expressed a concern. Lord, these, gonna, these people are going to be like sheep without a shepherd. Raise somebody up who can step in. And indeed, there would be a man who would be raised up to step in. Notice verse 18. The Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom uh, is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. I, I think the proper pronunciation is noon there in verse 18. And have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar, the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At this command they shall go out. At his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. And Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Everybody know what the, uh, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua is? In fact, You've all heard of the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, completed about 250 B.C. Whenever you read the Septuagint and you see the name Joshua, guess what the name is in Greek? Jesus. Jesus is the second Moses. In fact, rabbinic writers were saying at the time of Jesus, they expected the prophet to come, a second Moses. And there's even a rabbi who said, when he comes, one way you will be able to identify the Messiah is he will do a miracle of manna, similar to what Moses, uh, God did through Moses in the desert. 
What are we about to look at? A miracle of bread and fish, and it's going to come through the hand of Jesus Christ by the power of God. Now, one more. It's found in Ezekiel 34. So pass up the Psalms and Proverbs. Go Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, chapter 34. One of the things that we need to do with our Bibles is do some scripture with scripture and see how these all connect. This is Ezekiel 34, the second allusion. I'm not saying illusion, by the way. I mean alluded to Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, 34.1, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Ezekiel 34.3, You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. These are all things that Jesus did. He healed the sick. He strengthened. Uh, he brought back the, the, the broken. He bound them up. He sought for the lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack, notice, of a shepherd, Ezekiel 34.5. They became food for every beast of the field, and were scattered. I will feed my flock, go down to verse 15. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Then, Ezekiel 34, 23, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Many scholars believe that this is the greater David, Jesus, being prophesied about here in Ezekiel. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Look at 25. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field, 27, will yield its fruit. The earth will yield its increase. They will be secure on their land. And then they will know that I am the Lord. When I've broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who, have in, who enslaved them, and they will no longer be a prey to the nations. And the beasts of the earth will not devour them but they will live securely and notice no one will make them afraid. Back to Mark chapter six. This is the context of the quote from Mark's gospel. Jesus looked upon them and saw them like sheep without a shepherd. The multitude pursues Jesus. The disciples are representatives of Israel. That's why there's 12 of them. And once more, they find themselves in this desolate place, this wilderness place. Jesus is Israel's faithful servant. And the question that comes up, like the 40 years of wilderness wandering, is once he does this, will they follow him? You know, in the parallel account in John 6, you get a little bit more detail on this story from, uh, as opposed to the Gospel of Mark. And in John 6, 66, after Jesus fed all the people and preached about taking in his body and drinking his blood. He was not speaking literally. He was speaking spiritually. He said, you ate them, the food, the, the bread that was multiplied just like the manna, but that's not the point because that food will perish. Do not labor for the bread that perishes, John 6, 27, but the bread that will give you eternal life. And that bread is him. He is the bread of God. And oftentimes what people want is they want what Jesus can give them. They want what's on the master's table rather than the master. Everybody with me? We want what Jesus, you know, people often say, I'll give Jesus a shot. You know, maybe he can, maybe I'll add him to my portfolio, you know. No, Jesus says, you give me all of you. 
Then I'll add to your life. You seek me and my kingdom first. Then I'll add to you. Don't seek what's on my table. Don't just do that. Now, Jesus, of course, teaches the people. Luke 9, 11, just write it down. It's a parallel account. It says, the multitudes were aware. They followed him. And Jesus welcomed them. And he began to speak to them about the kingdom of God. And he was curing those who had need of healing. I mean, if it were me, I would have been a little tired and cranky. But Jesus welcomed them with compassion. Look at Mark 6.35. And when it was already quite late, Mark 6.35, his disciples came up to him and began saying, the place is desolate. It's already quite late. It might be, you know, 4 or 5 p.m. The sun would set in the spring at about 6. And so here's their solution. They said, send them away. So they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So the crowds came Jesus welcomed them. He taught them about the kingdom. He had compassion on them. Disciple solution, maybe a little side meeting. You tell them, no. You tell them, no. I think Philip was the one, the guy that got the short straw. So he went up to Jesus. Lord, uh, just to update you on current events, (laughs) sun's kind of going down. This is a desolate place. Send the people away, perhaps thousands of people. Now, remember, all the people ran, so did anybody really pack a sack lunch? Well, apparently one little boy with a very enterprising mother did, you know, because he's the little boy that has the lunch, right? Everybody else, and we got, well, what do you do? Now, we know there's 5,000 men. Matthew 14, 21, write it down, says, plus women and children. So you hear scholars say 15 to 20,000. We don't know. Could have been 8,000 there. Could have been 10. We know there's 5,000 men plus women and children. And so maybe 10,000, maybe 15. Some people say 20 because there would be just one guy, but if there's a wife and children, maybe there's three or four others. Who knows? There's thousands of people out there. Now, in the modern day, let's say that we did an outreach at the park and we realized that nobody brought anything. Let's say that we had 10,000 people there. And I went up to one of you who are involved in the hospitality ministry, and I said, we got a big problem. None of these people packed the lunch. We're at a desolate park. What do we do? I said, well, if we drive through uh, in and out <laughs> see, it's about three, four miles from where we are in the order. What would you like today, sir? Uh, 10,000. I, I don't think it would be a cheeseburger. These people are Jewish. Okay, it's got to be a place with a fish sandwich. I'd like 10,000 fish sandwiches, 10,000 fries, 10,000 iced teas. And can we get some of those little uh, pastries, a little dessert? Can you imagine that? Even in the modern times, that would be an overwhelming thing. It would be an impossible situation, not to mention the fact that this is 2,000 years ago, and I don't think there's any drive throughs It's a desolate place. So we understand. You ever been there? You've been in the apostles' shoes. Family comes around the holidays. They stay for two hours. (laughs) You say to your wife, send them away. Now. You're thinking to yourself, don't you people have homes? Is that your solution? Is that mine? Send the problem away. I don't want to deal with these people. Here's the apostles. You know, just when you, remember, they're in faith training right now. They're supposed to be getting the heart of Jesus. And many times when I look at my heart, I go, oh, man, that's not your heart, Lord. Send them away. Lord, we've come up with a solution. Here it is. Get rid of these people. We don't have to feed them, too, do we? We already... We already laid hands on a bunch of them. They already tracked us down when you told us it was time to rest. You've heard the old saying, I think many of you heard Pastor Chuck Smith say it, blessed are the flexible for they will not break. Are you an inflexible person? We're going to do it this way. It's 1019. (laughs) People are like, whoa. Well, send them away. 
They said to Jesus in Luke's gospel, send the crowd away so that they can go in the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging. This is a remote place. Send them away. Write this down for your notes. In John 6, 3 and 4, we find out that when all this was happening, Jesus went up on the mountain. He sat with the disciples. And the season was the Passover. The Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. This is the setting and the season. It's Passover season. It's spring, about our March, April. And what would the people of Israel be thinking about? Many of these people were probably uh, pilgrims heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. What would they be thinking about? Deliverance, Moses, the first five books, of course, focusing on the wilderness wanderings and the provision of God. And Jesus is about to do a miraculous provision. The bread of life is about to produce food for these folks. And Jesus responds. Look at verse 37, a very inconvenient response. Mark 6, 37. Jesus answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Lord, you ever had the Lord confront you? Something like this. A problem comes your way and you say, I'll pray for you. And then, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Send them off. <laughs> and the Lord speaks to your heart and says, provide something that they need. What good is it if you say to someone, be warm, be filled, and you don't give them what they need for their body? Hello? And that, it's pretty convenient for us sometimes. And sometimes the Lord confronts us and says, no, you and you say, Lord, I'm saving this $5 for I had a burrito in my, I'm, I'm, I visualized the burrito. <laughs> now, you want me to give what? <laughs> Lord, is, now that can't be the Lord, could it? You give them something to eat. Jesus does that stuff all the time. And they respond, don't you know how much this is going to cost, Lord? Basically, just to sum up, we could work for eight months and not have enough money to buy bread for these people so they would just get a little bit. Lord, I don't know if you've calculated the number of people who are here and what this is going to take. What do you mean give them something to eat? I didn't even pack a lunch today. <laughs> you ever had conversations like that with the Lord in prayer? The disciples are in training. And Jesus says, you feed him. Later, when Jesus is interacting with Peter, he says to them, feed my lamb. He says to them, him, feed my lambs. Take care of my people three times, right? Tend my sheep. This is a test. This is only a test of the emergency broadcasting system. <laughs> Young people are going, what in the world is he talking about? Years ago, and I think they still do it on, on radio. I don't know if they do it on TV anymore. They would test the uh, system. Do they still do it today? And the most annoying sound comes on your television or radio. It's like, ah, 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 ah. and then they say, this is a test. This is the only, only a test of the emergency broadcasting system. In the interaction between Jesus and Philip, it says these words. If you want to take a look, it's John, just a few pages to your right. Chapter 6, verse 5. John 6, verse 5. Remember, this is in all four Gospels. So when you piece them together, there's a, you get a more complete picture. John 6, verse 5 says, Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing the great multitude, John 6, 5, was coming, uh, was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? So he, he puts it back on Philip. And this he was saying to what? To test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. You ever been there before? Lord, what are we going to do? <laughs> Lord, I don't know if you know what's going on here. Thousands of them. They all ran, so they're extra hungry. <laughs> I know that dude right there. He eats five sandwiches in one sitting. This cannot be good. And the Lord was testing him. He already knew what he was going to do. And Philip said to him, 
Answered him, seven, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Are you a Philip? Have you done your calculations? Do you live your life by the calculator? We need people like you. Don't get me wrong. We need people who have, you know, done the spreadsheet and all of that, but that's not how God works all the time. We've got to find that balance between faith and, you know, being real about situations, but Philip says, you can't, they're not even going to have a bite if we had worked for eight months and saved our money. So back to Mark. The Lord doesn't want us to be faithless. And here's a point that may, you know, escape us if we don't just park here for a second. Who was on the hillside? The one who had done what? He was curing sick people, opening the eyes of the blind, unstopping the ears of the deaf, raising people from the dead. And you don't think he can take care of a meal? You know, sometimes we forget who lives in us. Amen? We think, well, there's no possible way. You ever said that? Maybe some of you are famous for that. There's no possible way. <laughs> but with God, mm, how many? All things are possible. No, <laughs> teenager. <laughs> I said it. No possible way. Jesus like, way. <laughs> 38, Mark 6. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. So they went on a little mission, looking around for the brown baggers, the real organized people in the group. Hey, anybody bring a sack lunch today? <laughs> little boy. It's got five loaves and two fish. By the way, the fish were probably like little salted, like sardine kind of things. Like, yeah. Amen. He had more faith than anybody, right? Yeah. Now, can you imagine, say your mama, say your mama packed you peanut butter and jelly sandwich, apple, some healthy, low-fat chips baked, right? Little juice, little juice box. 15,000 people, and you go, here, I, I got one. So can you imagine being one of the apostles? Hey, kid, yeah, thanks a lot. Eat half of it as you're walking to Jesus. I don't think he's told me. How much is in there? Well, now. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> no candy in the house. <laughs> Except in the secret compartment. Well, there's a little boy here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that among so many people? Lord, get real. Send them away. We told you what the solution is here. And Jesus says, give it to me. In Numbers 11, just write it down for your notes. This is verse 22. The people are whining. There's 600,000 men on foot. And Moses says in Numbers 11:22, should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Numbers 11:23, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Even Moses said, Lord, what are you going to do? Like, there's a couple million people out here. Are all the fish of the sea just going to come up and flop it before us so we can cook them? Isn't it interesting? Five loaves, two fish. Five plus two equals seven. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. And so they took it. Jesus has the lunch of a little boy Mark 6.39, he commanded them to all recline, <clears throat> excuse me, by groups on what? The green grass. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in. Do you think there's a connection here? I think so. Of course, it's springtime, so the grass is green, but there's something deeper here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Is that just a Bible verse or is that actually real? 
And so Jesus says, let the people recline. Reclining, by the way, is you know, what the Jews would do on pillows, low table, to eat. Can you imagine being one of the people out there? What are we going to recline for? Stomachs gurgling, right? <laughs> You're one of those people. Why are we going to recline? There's no food. Then <laughs> the Lord comes through. Yes. All right. Sorry. <laughs> so they reclined in companies of hundreds, verse 40 and 50s. Write down Exodus 18, 21. Because in Exodus 18, 21, this is in, at least in part how the camps uh, reclined or, or were ordered. Arkant Hughes says, interestingly enough, the almost contemporaneous Qumran documents found the Dead Sea used these subdivisions to describe how it was thought true Israel would assemble in the desert in the last days, close quote. And he took the five loaves, 41, the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. You got to picture the apostles here. They're like, what is he doing? He blessed the food, broke the loaves, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And here the language is, he kept giving it, and they kept giving it away. What has the Lord multiplied in your life? Sometimes we feel like we have so little to give, right? Lauren, same lunch today. <laughs> How you doing today? Same old, same old. Same lunch, same people at work, right? No, I got a little cupcake in my lunch today, but other than that, same old. You know, if you will just offer what God has given you. Look, if you feel inadequate to, jo to do ministry, join the club. Every one of us do. But if you will offer what you have, God will multiply it. Amen. But if you don't offer it, will he multiply it? Question. And so here's what happens. They all ate and they were what? Satisfied. They didn't just get a bite. They all ate like seconds and thirds and second dinners. And they were all satisfied. This word has the idea of full. Yeah. Like after a Thanksgiving meal. Can I get a witness? Not going to do it this year. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, that food, man, you just can't help it. Some of you fast for like three days before Thanksgiving, right? And then I'm just, oh. And they picked up how many? Twelve. How full were they? Full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Matthew 14, 21 says, plus women and children. They picked up 12 full baskets. Hmm. Woman with a 12-year flow of blood, Jesus stops her bleeding. 12-year-old little girl is dead and is made alive again. 12 full baskets are picked up as he feeds the nation, retracing the steps of fallen Israel in the desert, the message, he can supply everything you need. For all 12 of the tribes, he is the one who supplies for Israel, and he's going to feed the 4,000 in Mark 8. We won't go there now. And they'll pick up seven large baskets, and that speaks of the seven Gentile nations. And the message in both feedings is, I can feed the world, Jew and Gentile, with spiritual nourishment for their souls if they will only come to me and eat. The question, have you come? Have you learned that he can supply everything that you need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? Would you bow with me, Father? Thank you that you meet all of our deepest needs, not just our immediate fleshly needs, although many of those are legitimate. You've, you've made the world so that we need food and water and shelter. There are some illegitimate needs, things that we try to fill the wrong way at the wrong time. But you can meet the deepest need, the spiritual need of every one of us. And the hunger that we often feel 
and try to satisfy continues to testify that if we drink that water, we're going to thirst again and again and again. If we eat that bread, we'll be hungry again. These people, Lord, that ate the bread, 5,000 plus women and children, I wonder how many of them who ate this bread and enjoyed the fish actually came to the bread of life. I wonder. From the end of John 6, it would seem not that many. And Lord, we can taste of the heavenly gift, but that doesn't necessarily mean we belong to you. We can experience the beauty of your creation, the sunshine, the the rain, all that you provide for us, but it doesn't mean that we've settled our relationship with you. And I pray no one here this morning would walk away without understanding the message. The message is deeper than just physical food. The message is that we need the bread of God. You know, you compared the bread to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, but it's even more than that. You are the bread of life. And when we come and believe, we find life, and that more abundantly. So just keep your head and heart bowed for a second. If you've not settled it with Jesus, or maybe you've been, you know, trying to find it elsewhere, maybe you've been off the path, you keep going to broken cisterns and stale bread to find life. Settle it this morning. Just say, Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry I keep looking for answers when right in front of me, the answer is there. Tell them that you want to repent. Just say, I repent of my sin and I come to you in faith. Be my Lord, be my Savior, save me. Thank you for Jesus. I believe in his death on the cross. I believe in his resurrection from the dead. I want to know you, Lord, and walk with you. Father, thank you for this precious congregation. So many Christ followers here, so many faithful, wonderful souls who are marching after your orders, Lord, and they want to carry them out. And when they get tired, especially for the Royal Family Kids Camp this week and need a little energy, just supply everything that they need according to all that you bless us with, Father. We're so grateful for your faithfulness to us. May we be found faithful in Jesus' name.